0: So Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse um, 16. <clears throat> if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. It's talking about an olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, speaking of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, I'm being engrafted into um, the Old Testament promises. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, just to pause there, go back, rewind the tape, listen to last week's sermon. But what he's saying is um, there's a remnant of Israel that still believes. So God's promises to Israel have not failed. This is what he's been making this argument in these chapters. And then, but some of these branches... These, these members of Israel who did not have faith, they were broken off because they didn't have faith. So it was always by faith, circumcision of the heart, not just the flesh, um, the power of the Holy Spirit entering into a person's life, transforming them through faith. Old Testament, same as in the New Testament, always by faith alone. So these non-believing members of Israel, God says, are not part of spiritual Israel. So not all of Israel is Israel. Jesus made this same point. And in this analogy, branches are broken off. Now the Gentiles who come into the faith of Jesus Christ, which isn't just like, oh, all of a sudden there's some new faith. No, this is the Abrahamic faith of God. These are the promises of God all the way from the Garden of Eden. And there's this root, which is the patriarchs. And then we get engrafted in. And we're called wild olive shoots, which means um, back then it was like, you really aren't good for anything. You you are olive branches, but they're not going to bear any fruit. So they're going to... Put us into this tree that is now bearing great fruit. We bear fruit because of this. We are therefore receiving nourishment from the Old Testament promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so those who are of, the, of Israel, that are faithful Jews, they too, the same faith, are being saved and nourished. But it's all this same faith. And so this is what he's saying. Then he's saying to the Gentiles, Just because you're a Gentile doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Just because you've been baptized, just because you take the Lord's Supper, none of this means you're going to be saved. You need to be just like Israel was. Make sure you have faith. Make sure you have faith. I don't care if you said the prayer. I don't care any things that you may have done that you have your get out of hell free card and you're going to present it in heaven all of a sudden. God says, if you do not continue in the faith, then you were never of the faith. And so he says, notice the severity and the kindness of God. So sometimes all we want to see is the kindness of God. God is love. God loves everybody. God would never judge anybody. No, he judges his own people. If he judges his own people, how will we who are not a people have now been engrafted in? How will we not be judged if we abandon the faith? It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit, you are, uh, you will not be broken off. But what he says is make sure you're in the faith. Don't just think because you're in the church means that you're actually In the faith. But he also makes points about don't think that you're in the faith and you're outside the church. That's a dangerous territory to be in. So then we get to verse twenty-five. Then he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient, in order that the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. And so when you're reading Paul, if you read you know, the Bible as you should, um, and you, you, what you'll see in the midst of Paul's writings is he just all of a sudden busts out in doxology. Praise. He'll say something and all of a sudden you get this doxology. You get this praise. And it's always based on, and these are cool words, theology and doxology. So our theology is our knowledge of God. And so I've heard some people say, well, you know, I don't believe in, I have a friend, he likes to say this, I don't believe in theology, I believe in neology. So he's like, he's not all academic, he believes in prayer. And I'm like, yeah, but that's your theology. You know, so whatever it is you believe about God, that's your theology. Everybody has a theology. Even an atheist has a theology. His theology is, I don't believe there's a God. And the Bible says, well, a fool says in his heart there is no God, so you see what you're dealing with. The foolishness of man, that would say there is no God. So when Paul begins to talk about his theology, the things he knows, the knowledge of God, which is what that word means, is he begins to talk about things that God has revealed um, by his Holy Spirit through him and in his word, he just begins to just praise God in the midst of it. And so if your reading of God's word, your prayers of God, your knowledge of God, your interactions with the living and one true God doesn't lead you to doxology. It only leads you to theology. You only want to learn more. But if it doesn't lead you to prayer, if it doesn't lead you to praise, you're not really getting it. And we understand this, just the world understands how this works. If you, if you have somebody that you're, you're dating, you're interested in, you just want to learn more about them. I gotta know more I gotta know more because why because I because I really like them a lot so I want to know more about them now if it continues in a good way it's like the more I know about them the more I love them and the more I love them the more I want to know and the more I know the more I love them and hopefully you get called up into this wonderful thing but as humans there's all these little glitches that show up in there so we got to be merciful and gracious and things like this but that's the way it works with God perfectly the more you know about him the more you love him And the more you love him, the more you want to know. And then the more you know, the more you love him. And so our theology serves our doxology and our doxologies to drive us to to know more about him. This is our great hope. This is this is we're in a relationship with him. And if we're in a relationship, that means there is this interaction of knowledge of God and not just simply um, what can I get from him? Not simply, I'm, I'm worshiping him from the benefits, makes me feel good about myself, makes me feel better to do this thing, or even people who teach that, um, you know, you can be wealthy if you go to God, he provides for your needs, and there's a, a saying that says, um, um, if you go to God for money, God is not your God, money is. So you had to be careful about that, you know, what is it that if God were to strip from me, I won't serve him anymore? And when you think about that, there's lots of things that God can strip from us that will cause us to question his goodness, that can question whether or not we ought to be following him, all kinds of things happen in a believer's heart. But as we go through these things in his word, in the church, with other believers, with prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper, all these things that work in us, then what we see is a knowledge of God that's deepened in all the things that we go through. And this is really what Paul is talking about. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. King James says, I don't want you to be wise in your own conceits. And so another way it's translated is, I don't want you to be conceited. I'm going to tell you something to keep from being conceited. So what does it mean to be conceited? I think we can all kind of know what that means. In verse chapter 11, 18, the people in the church in Rome were warned not to be arrogant, not to be boastful. And then in verse 20, they were, they were warned not to become proud. And so you have to think, okay, well, what would cause a believer, especially those who were in Rome as he's talking about these things, what causes a believer to become arrogant and proud, um, conceited? What could cause that in a believer? And it's really what all conceit is by thinking that they're better than everybody else. What's that song? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You know, I mean, it it is, and you know how that is. It's hard to be humble when you're so perfect. And so Paul is telling them he's like listen there's a minute this is this is the greatest grace that's ever could possibly be given to people you guys you had the Jews who were pursuing righteousness but not by faith and here you guys weren't even pursuing righteousness and God just comes in and grabs you and opens your eyes. And all of a sudden you're worshiping and maybe you're third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Christians, especially living in this country. We have an inheritance that we, we get. And so you might not recognize the the outsidedness of Christianity that it's like, you know, you go to some land uh, that's never heard. Imagine sharing the gospel to a group of people that have never even heard it before. They no idea, no clue. You know, and to us, that's like, well, there are people like that. There are still people who experience that. But, you know, in our daily travels, we're not likely to come across somebody who hasn't even heard of it before. But increasingly more and more, we get people that come in um, that you talk to. They've heard of it, but they really don't understand it. They don't get it. And then you get a certain amount of theology in the Reformed faith. You know, it is, after all, the Reformed faith, and we have confessions and catechisms and all of these things, and we're not Catholic, you know, but we um, certainly uh, are. We value learning, and we value um, the traditions of the faith. We know that we're not the first Christians to come about, that there's been thousands of years of Christians who have been laboring in the Word and have been persecuted, the, the Puritans and all these people that, under great, under threat of death, put together Um, These wonderful confessions and these things that we understand about what the Bible teaches. And we have access to their sermons and their writings. But you can become a little bit arrogant because it's like you've got some theology that's a little bit more correct than a lot of other people. And why would you get that theology? Because it was revealed to you. You understand that. We, As good Reformed theologians, we we know that we didn't just because we're so smart. You know, we're not... We're not, we don't have superior theology. There's a good little video this guy does, and he always pictures the Presbyterians in the, you know, the vest for some reason. And then the uh, bow tie, Christian will wear that, but not me, not Christian, my Christian, but Christian, you're Christian. Christian Herring, the pastor, sitting in the back row without his bow tie on. That's fine. So, but if you have, you know, the, that's the, the role that people can see us sometimes from the outside. We, we're the superior theology church, you know, which, yeah, it is. But it's, that's arrogance. What do you mean? You know, it's like you have to. the first step of going deeper with God, every step of going deeper with God doesn't require us to go up higher rungs. It requires us to go down lower rungs in our hearts to recognize our humility, our gratefulness, our depravity, you know, how grateful we are. He's like, okay, maybe you have had things revealed to you that other people haven't had revealed. You know, even as believers, period. You've had things revealed to you that people outside the world, it's not because they aren't smart enough. It's because of sin. And so we're like, well, thank God I'm not like those sinners. No, you were. And you may well have been worse than them, but God is at work in your heart through the gospel. This is the work of God in our hearts and our lives. So don't become conceited. This isn't exactly what he's telling these guys in the church in Rome, but it's pretty close. So that if we're going to have this application for ourselves, and if, you know, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning as he does through the word, he says, you know, I don't want you to be conceited. But I want you, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to reveal a mystery to you. Now, a mystery, in the biblical way of talking, is a a truth that's always been there, but it's been hidden, and now it's been revealed by God. And so it's been revealed to the whole world. It's a mystery. like We read a mystery, and it means something's happened. you got to figure it out. You know, why is that happening? Oh, no, it's a mystery. You know, but a mystery in the Bible is like, it's revealed. It says marriage is a mystery. And it's like, and you might say, oh, yeah, I get that. But no, the mystery is that it reveals Christ Jesus. It's been revealed. It's been something that's been hidden. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes and he says, you know what this is? It's the relationship of Christ to the church. That is the meaning of marriage. It's been revealed now. Everybody might not believe it, but that's what it is. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. and gave himself for her to present to himself a bribe without spot or wrinkle. That's the gospel. We're entering into this relationship with him. But this mystery that Paul is now revealing, he's like, you can see it, but this is what's happening. This is what's happening behind the scenes. This is what God is doing. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I have to say, if I were going to a conference and I was asked to speak somewhere, I'm not going to say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick this section to, to preach on because this is difficult stuff. But if you don't just preach straight through books of the Bible, you're not going to hit the difficult stuff. But the difficult stuff here is talking about, you know, what is it that we need to understand about what's going on with Israel? Because there's a lot of confusion about Israel. You know, pray for Israel. Um, They're the people of God. They're the elect people of God. So then, so, well, what's the church then? It's like, and so there's a lot of theology that will say there are two ways of salvation, for, one for the Jew and then one for everybody else. And we have to be very careful with that because Jesus died on the cross to save everyone that will be saved, whether the Jew or Gentile. So if there's going to be salvation, it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have to see that when the word, let me find where I am here, for I want you to be wise, You're I want you to be <clears throat> unaware, brothers, of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, so some of Israel has been hardened. And we recognize the fact, it's like, gosh, for the most part, Israel has been hardened. But he says it's partial, it's not complete. And then he's going to say, also, it's only temporary. It's not going to be done like this forever, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, we're Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. I don't care where you are, who you are, what religion you are, that's, that's those two categories. Jew, Gentile. So there's going to be a fullness. And that word in Greek is pleroma. So you got to understand we're already talking about a translation here. But when that happens, then there's this going to be um, this uh, awakening of Israel. And it says in this way, all Israel will be saved. So this word for fullness of the Gentiles is the same word they use in in classical Greek. It's for a ship that is fully manned with sailors, rowers, and soldiers. So it's full. Now, that doesn't mean the ship can't hold one more single person. It just means it's got its full complement. We've got the fullness, everybody that we need for this, we have. And so that's not, you can't take that exactly over into what he's saying. Then there's a New Testament usage when they use that word pleroma, which means believers that have been filled with the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that you had this complete filling, but you've been filled with God's power and his presence. So it's this filling. And so when this filling, fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and so what that doesn 't necessarily mean is there's no more Gentiles once the last Gentile gets saved, then Israel's going to convert on mass and that can 't be what it 's talking about because in eleven verse twelve we read now if their trespass so i'm at Jews, if the Jewish trespass means riches to the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion means so apparently when there's this uh, mass uh, acceptance of Jesus Christ for the, Israel, for the Jewish people, that's going to be a great blessing to the Gentiles. So it doesn't sound like that's the end of the Gentiles, but that this will even be greater for the Gentiles. So there's, depending on what your end times views are, depends on how you interpret this, but what you need to be able to see with this is just because it says fullness doesn't mean every... This does not necessarily mean when the last Gentile has been saved, then every last Israelite will be saved. Because so that does some damage to the text. That's reading in more than is necessary, unless that's what your theological scheme kind of wants to believe about these things. And F.F. F. Bruce, when he talks about... Um, well, let me just say, so this fullness of the Gentiles can just mean there maybe is just a certain number that's going to be reached, and then all Israel, they're going to get this all Israel thing. So there's a fullness that's going to happen, but it doesn't mean that no more Gentiles, that's it, got that last guy, came to faith, and now this happens. But it does mean there's a full number that's going to come about. And so um, then we get this all Israel, and F.F. Bruce has said that the mercy that's going to be given to them is not without, is with, <clears throat> the mercy is without distinction But it is not without exception. So this doesn't mean that every single Israelite is going to be saved. But rather than having a remnant that's saved, you're going to have this mass number that's going to be saved. The remnant, the small number is going to be those. There are going to be fewer people who disbelieve of the Jewish people than there will be people who do believe. So it's not necessarily every single Israelite will be saved, but when there's been... Only a saved remnant, there will now be the saved mass of people. And therefore, this is not a sign necessarily of the very last day. Okay, so if the, we do see this big thing, all of a sudden Israelites, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people come to faith in Christ. That is one step towards where we're going, but it doesn't mean it's like any day now. Although it always means any day now, but you can't look for these signs that happen like this. Because it could be another thousand years. That we had that or two thousand years, great time of, of 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 wondrous mercy and grace for the church. But you also see um, par- parables in the Bible that talk about you know evil growing at the same time. You know there's these weeds that grow up at the same time. So as the church grows larger, so does evil, darkness. You know, so it doesn't necessarily mean. And I promise you, we can go when we start talking about end time stuff, we can go all over the place. And I don't want this sermon to be all about end time stuff because this is a sermon about the mercy that we need in Jesus Christ. But what we may see is what we need to be doing, because this is where I think the bad theology that is corrected partially in this verse can be fixed is, do not think of Israel as different than they're going to get saved in a different way those are the chosen people of God. That the Jewish people are God's chosen people. Because yes and amen they are. And we're going to see that in a second. However, the elect, the called, the chosen, the church. The believers. Now it can get confusing. But the confusion wherever you go with it, the bottom line has to be this. If one single Jewish person is ever saved, which they are, it will only be by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There's not going to be some Second temple thing they're going to start doing. Uh, that they're going to, the church is going to get raptured out. And then God's going to start dealing with the church. That is not only utter nonsense. It's in my opinion. It is blasphemously unorthodox and unchristian. Because it does violence to Jesus. Work on the cross. And his prayer in the garden. If there be another way. Let this cup pass. And he died one way. Jesus Christ. Jew. Gentile. The same, only through Jesus Christ. We walk up and you see Adam in heaven, it's because Jesus Christ died for his sins and he had faith in it. And we can see evidence of that after the fall. But looking at verse 26, talking, to it, so, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as is written, this is Old Testament theology. The deliverer will come from Zion. This is from the Jewish people. And he'll banish ungodliness from Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Abrahamic covenant theology. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And with regards to the gospel, and that's what you just heard, taking away their sins, in regards to the gospel, their enemies for your sake. Now, this doesn't mean that they are, in, they, they are the church's enemy. This means that they are God's enemy. For those who are unbelieving, they are enemies of God. But the Jewish people, Paul is making this strange point in this section, the Jewish people are enemies of God, and the reason they're enemies of God is for the sake of the church, that they were broken off so that we might be engrafted in. Whatever God is doing with the Jews, the nation of Israel, as originally established, was supposed to be a light to the nations, and they were going to take over the world in the, in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and called all nations to themselves, but they failed to do it because they pursued it as if it was by works and not by faith. But their job was to do what Adam was supposed to do, was to fill the earth with God's glory, with God's people. And he failed because man will always fail. Even the perfect man, unsinful, completely without sin, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, one job, don't do it. And couldn't do it. And then we get all the way... To Christ, the second Adam, he does what they couldn't do, and he fulfills all righteousness. He dies, his blood is shed so that we might believe in him. But Israel failed to do what Israel is called to do. But in Christ, now the church, spiritual Israel, is able to do this. Because what do you see the church doing? It's supposed to be going into all the world, bringing in, making disciples, teaching them to observe, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the church. This is what we do. This is what is happening. So that had to happen because they could not do it. This had to happen with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. So they're enemies of God because of the gospel. But as regards to election, they are beloved because of the promises given to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's like, okay, this is why there's some confusion. Because on the one hand, Israel is our enemies for the most part. If they reject Christ, they're God's enemies. Because the gospel is, Jesus Christ has come. This is the announcement of God the Son having to come for salvation. No way to the Father but by me. All the blood sacrifices that you're given, all the law is supposed to point you to the fact that you couldn't do it, and you need his mercy, you need his grace, you need the sacrifice, and here's Jesus, and everybody's going, that's it, exactly what we were looking for. But instead, they rejected their Savior, their Messiah, for the most part, because he was telling them, "You're not good enough, and you can't do it." And they're like, "How dare you?" And we saw it played over and over again. And this is the Gentile response; it's the human response of, "Don't tell me I'm not good enough. Don't tell me I need a savior. Don't tell me I don't have my life under control. Don't tell me these things. I don't need God. Who's you know?" And you just you, you preach the gospel. You talk about the gospel to some people, and you can tell you're not getting it because the Holy Spirit has to be the one. To do these things. But there is the nation of Israel. That because of election is beloved for God's sake. And he's not done with them yet. People are still being saved out of Israel. And one day there's going to be this fullness of them. That's going to come in too. So we look forward to that. And so the correction to our theology has to be is. Don't follow a theology that tells you that it's wrong to evangelize Jewish people. That aren't believers in Christ. You need to evangelize everybody. It's even called sometimes I've seen it called anti-Semitic to tell a Jewish person that they need to believe in Christ, that without Jesus Christ, they only face God's wrath and curse. Well, you can't tell them that. Well, why not? It's their only hope, but we have to believe that. And we've been infiltrated by such dispensational theology and different things like this, that the thought of Israel as being God's chosen people in such a way that we don't have to deal with them. We just have to love them and pray for them, and which we should, just like we do all other people groups, We have to be aware that they need the gospel. And there are Jewish people that fervently evangelize other Jewish people. And we should join them in their great task. Verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God has made promises. He's going to fulfill those promises. And it's got to be done by faith. And this will always take place. We trust in the promises and the callings of God. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God. So I do want to, sorry, let me back up to this one point. Because in verse 26 it says, in this way all Israel will be saved. And I want to say, what does it mean they'll be saved? You know, what does that mean? And it means what it says, their sins are taken away. So there are not two ways of salvation. It's through this covenant. It's through Christ's blood. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we been saved? Have you been saved? And if you've been saved, that means your sins have been taken away. As far as the east is from the west, you've been forgiven. It doesn't mean you're now sinless, but certainly we'd hope you begin to sin less. But even, as we've said before, you may, as you become deeper in the faith, recognize more of your sin, and you feel like you become more sinful because now you're recognizing what sin is. And that should only cause you to cling deeper, closer to the cross, to Jesus, and not drive you away from the church. That's worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow drives you into your home. It drives you into your father's bosom. It drives you to Christ and says, I must have you. I need you every minute of every hour. Oh, Lord. How I need you. And so we have to make sure that our sins have been taken away. And then in 28 through 32, we see this the status that, that we're in and that Jews are in. So if you look at verse 28, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved. So they're enemies, but they're also beloved in a sense. For the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what you got to kind of recognize is a couple words that kept popping up, disobedience and mercy, disobedience and mercy, disobedience and mercy. You don't need mercy unless you've been disobedient. And so everybody's been disobedient. All have sinned and fall short of glory of God, Jew and Gentile. And so one of the ways I like to describe mercy as opposed to grace, which they're closely related. But mercy is um, you're pulled by the highway patrolman for speeding. You did it, you're dead to rights. And he comes up and he says, hey, this is like a, you know, thank goodness I don't know how much these fines are these days. So it's like $200 fine for speeding. And he says, but I tell you what, I'm just going to give you a warning today. That's mercy. He had mercy on you. He had you. He could have given you the fine. He could have given you justice. But instead, he, maybe he felt pity on you or for whatever reason, you received mercy. Now, grace is when maybe he looked at your car and said, this car is in so much bad shape here, I'm going to give you $100 to help you get it fixed, you know, something. That's grace. He, didn't have to, he reached in his own pocket and gave you something. That's grace. That's just being lavished. But what drove him to that? It was his mercy, his pity for you. But out of the riches of his wallet and his desire to go over and above, he didn't just give you a a warning and let you mercifully go. He graced you with a gift. And this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Out of his great mercy, he has graced us with salvation. But we have to understand that we had to be, we needed mercy. We needed mercy. We still need his mercy. And mercy is what you give somebody. It's like they're, they're just down. They're out. There's nothing you can do. You can... If they were your enemy, you could wipe them out, you could stomp them. But mercy is like, no, I'll release my hands from around your neck. You know, and that's what we get from, from God. And this disobedience, we have to recognize the fact that this is the cause of our need for, for mercy. And it's only available from God because he's the one we've sinned against. and He's the only one that can give us this type of mercy. And if we can't see our disobedience or we can't see and admit that our, our need for his mercy and that his mercy is available to all who call in Jesus' name and that forgiveness of sins is, is ours for salvation if we just call upon his name, that without the forgiveness of our sins, our sins deserve hell forever. Condemnation. And the last time I heard Harry Reuters speak, is it a couple weeks ago at the uh, Gospel Reformation Network conference in Charlotte, and he said, um, I think we need to return to this word that isn't just condemnation. Because when we say there's now no condemnation, you can condemn somebody by saying, oh, I, they just, they, they, they rascals. You know, something. You know, you're condemning. He says, but we need to return to this word damnation. Because it got turned into a cuss word at some point, just like the word hell. it's like, oh, you can't say that word and you can't say damnation. It's like, <laughs> you're safe from da- eternal damnation. It's not just eternal condemnation where people walking past you and turning their nose up at you. It is damnation. It is hell forever. This is the just penalty for sin. And part of the problem of the church is we don't completely believe that, or we'd be much greater in our love for God and our desire to have people saved. But eternal damnation is the just punishment for our sins, our disobedience, because that's how bad sin is. It's how bad we are. And we don't understand. That's it. That's how bad you are. That's what you deserve. But we don't think we're so bad and we constantly defend ourselves and we do all this because look around, there's people worse than us. It's like they're going to. You know, we compare ourselves by the wrong thing. We compare ourselves with ourselves and with others instead of comparing ourselves with the holy God, which he says we're to be holy. And that's why the son of God, God the son and his sacrifice is the only sacrifice that was valuable enough to save even one other person. And yet we know his sacrifice is sufficient to save the world. All who call upon him will be saved. But you must call on him. But how can you call on him if you don't believe? We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see the mercy of God in our salvation As we're looking for this. You can read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Go ahead. You got Bibles or you got phones or whatever. Ephesians chapter 2. And you can read the Bible. You You should know this if you're a believer and you actually study the word of God. You read the same passage and it's like. I've never seen that in there before. Where'd that come from? I mean, this may not be one of these things, but it's because God's doing something different with us at different times. We're looking for different things. We're hearing different things. The Holy Spirit is pointing out different things to us, and that's why you need to be in the Word of God. That's why you need to be in church. That's why you need to be listening to the Word of God preached. You need to be seeing baptism, Lord's Supper, these things, encouraging one another and praying for one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So when we Read Ephesians 2, thinking about this mercy of God, the pity, pitying of God where he takes pity upon us. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10. And you, y'all, everyone, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. So he's talking to believers. And this is your condition. Dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. All right, I got to tell you this joke. It was told in a church by a pastor, and I think there's a gospel message in it somewhere. But there was a man that believed he was dead. And it was like, they kept telling him, you're not dead. He said, I'm pretty convinced I'm dead. He said, you're not dead. So this guy had a psychiatrist. Thank goodness he's a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist goes, says, hey, I'm going to take you to a morgue. We're going to show you some dead people and show you you're not like them. He says, okay. And so the guy comes up, and he says, all right. He says, and he pokes this dead body, and he's like, do they bleed? Do dead people bleed? No. You sure? Dead people bleed? No, dead people don't bleed. So he takes his finger and he pricks it. And the guy looks at him and he goes, well, look at there. Dead people do bleed. Yeah, and it's just you're going to believe what you can believe. You know, you believe you're dead in sin? No. Why? Because I'm walking? I'm talking? I'm doing this? I can do good things? He says you're dead in your sin. Nope. I'm not. You are. Apart from Christ, you're dead in your sin. Dead man can't do anything. Our Lazarus? arise and I've heard it said if he had just said arise all the dead would have arisen but no I think God would have understood who he's talking to but he calls him by name you're called by name the gospel is an individual call the gospel goes to the whole world but the Holy Spirit calls you by name individually says you I'm talking to you individually where is your heart with Jesus Christ? Do you recognize your need for him? When you come to the table, do you recognize that this is his work for us and this is us humbling ourselves under the cross of Christ and saying, apart from him, I can do nothing. I can do no good and I need him. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, here's an interesting thing that you might not notice, too. That's a past tense sentence to the people in the church. Y'all were dead. You're not anymore. Believer but they were sins in which you once walked how are you doing following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air satan who is greatly at work in the world so when you're watching all these things that are in the air radio tv smartphones stuff news videos tv shows movies whatever it is non believers doing whatever it is they do wherever they do it and you're under their influence is the prince of the power of the air having an influence over you But you're not dead to that anymore. So you don't just follow. You're not just in this stream where you're just floating down wherever it goes. No, now you're like, wait a second. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature. What are we by nature? That God loves us? You children of wrath. That's That's the gospel, children. You know, you're talking to people who are apart from Christ. They're children of wrath. That's who you're sharing the gospel with, children of wrath. You ever seen a child of wrath? Now, I want to go a little bit further because a child of wrath means God's wrath is upon them. But if you've ever seen somebody whose wrath is upon them, and they are rightfully being... So, sometimes... I used to work at Walmart for a little while, and there's a whole book you could write, The Theology of Walmart. So, you go to Walmart, and there are these children, and they'd be, you know, they want something. Shocked me. And then the parents were like, I don't want you to have it. Also shocking. And they just start yelling at the kid. It's just like the huge fights going on. It's huge. thing right in the middle of everywhere. And then you just want to go up and you want to enter into it. And you want to say, oh, stop treating the little child like that. And, you're like, and they're just going to look at you and just like, ah, you're going to get called in it too. And it's like going up to somebody and trying to share the gospel with them. And their their whole mind and body and stuff, they're all wrapped up in this stuff. And you're out there sharing the gospel with them. It's like you're grabbing a dog by the ears. Unless the Holy Spirit's at work. But the only way the Holy Spirit's going to be at work in that is if they hear the gospel. And so that's what we're talking. Because we were all like that. We were all dead in our sins. And we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4 is this turn. But God, had to be God. It doesn't say, but man, but man decided, hey, I've had enough of this. I've hit rock bottom. I need to, I need to fix my life, you know? And that's what we, the world prays for, the world. That's what the world plans for. It's what the world works for is we're going to fix it all. We're going we're to make sure that, but man will change. But God, being rich in mercy, he had to be merciful. He looked, he pitied, and he was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, and that was Jesus Christ. That is the great love with which He has loved us. He has loved us in Jesus Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ. Non-believers, dead. You're in the church? You've been made alive. This is a difference. You have now been made alive together with Christ. By grace, here's that grace word, you've been saved out of the riches of God. It wasn't just he had pity. He saved you out of his grace. He gave Jesus Christ. To us. And then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Even your faith is a gift of God and is not a result of works, so that no one may what? Be arrogant and conceited and prideful and boastful. Look at me. I got it. I went down the aisle. I said the prayer. I'm doing what I need to do. Look at me. Now you, know, you got to say, I don't know why it was me. Why it was me? Grace of God, he had mercy on me. I pray that he had mercy and grace on you. Cling to the gospel. You want this grace and mercy? All you do is ask for it, pray for it. But it's the God that's going to work even before that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then what are we supposed to be like? We are called to be merciful. Matthew 5-7, Jesus preaching, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for you will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for you will receive mercy. And in closing, let's look at um, James chapter 3, and it's just verses 16 and 17. He's um, talking about wisdom and these things is for verse 16 for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder in every vile practice. So I don't know where you work. I don't know where you live. I don't know where you do things. But if there's any jealousy there, if there's some selfish ambition there, and that can be in the church, too. Well, there's going to be disorder in every vile practice. I mean, that's that's pretty bad. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then it's peaceable. Now this doesn't necessarily describe a lot of the church, so you have to be careful with this as we're interacting with the world or other believers even, that our wisdom needs to be pure, this wisdom from above will be peaceful, and it will be gentle, and it will be open to reason, and full of mercy. And that, that's directed at other people. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then what do we get? A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that requires that we have mercy on others and we will receive mercy because we recognize the great mercy which we have received in Christ Jesus because of our disobedience, because of our sinfulness. Without Christ Jesus, we remain under the influence of the prince of power of the air and he will take you where you need to be. And there are believers too who can be caught in a snare of Satan. Captured to do his will. And the church is called to call people like that back. Encouraging one another. The gospel is powerful. God has done something for us in Christ Jesus that required him to be rich in mercy and pitying us. So you have that kind of God. And then the grace of our father. And he gives us all things. So when we come to the table, we're acknowledging without Christ I can do nothing. But he has given me all things. So that in Christ Jesus, there's no damnation. None. There's no condemnation. There's love. There's grace. In baptism, our sins are removed from us. As far as the east is from the west. And in the Lord's Supper, he helps us with our walk. He enables us to continue to grow in Christ's likeness and that is our greatest prayer. So let's pray. Father God, grow us in the Spirit. Grow us in faith. Help us to be more like you in every way. Help us to understand that apart from you, we can do nothing, but that in you, all the riches of Christ are given to us. And we look forward to the time we will see you, not just be at your table, but help us, Lord, when we come to this table to recognize The great mercy and grace that's given to us even this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.